Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and I'll be joined by a special guest today. But before we get into the episode, we do have a new patron to thank. So, Jeremy, thanks for supporting us on Patreon, and we hope you enjoy the bonus episodes over there. Uh, Speaking of bonus episodes, we just recorded the March bonus uh, earlier today. We watched The Hunt for Red October, and we will be discussing that in all its glory. Uh, And then uh, that'll be out sometime in the next few days. We're also trying to hit Dead Reckoning hard, so we can try to get two of those out uh, in the very near future. We haven't really been on our game with that so far this season, but we'd like to to get back into that and, and get some more stuff out there for you. And now... Uh, let's bring in our guest for today, the Duluth Boat King himself, Scott Bjorklund. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Uh, we've interacted quite a bit uh, in other forms via email and on Twitter. Via memes? Yes, lots of memes. That's, <laughs> I mean, in a way, that's the best way to communicate uh, with some of these things sometimes. Uh, it's a powerful medium. So it's great to finally have uh, Scott in the studio, per se. Scott's gonna gonna tell us a story with all of his expertise that he brings to the table. First, we have a segment on the show where we check in on each other and see what's been going on. What have we been listening to or reading or playing or writing or whatever else we may find ourselves up to? What have you been up to, Scott? Well, recently I've been getting, so uh, as you know, I'm a photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a little page called Scott's Canal Captures that you can find on facebook and um instagram but uh the shipping season just started for us so um my boat i I consider myself a hardcore boat nerd so Mm -hmm. when shipping stops in january i kind of go through withdrawal of like (laughs) not much to do now you know (laughs) and then as the weeks come up to the sioux locks opening up it's like oh it's getting closer i'm getting so excited and then the the coast guard comes out and starts breaking ice and it's just you know the gif of like from like pro wrestling just the oh the intensity just keeps on growing <laughs> and then <laughs> and then finally we get our fir- first ship so the coast guard ice breaking uh kind of analogous to like spring training in baseball where it's like exactly you know, so- something something's happening here yeah yeah, yeah. And it's just fun to watch i mean it's a sign of spring that supposedly is coming uh mm-hmm. even though it doesn't seem like it but so my photography is back in action i've started to take pictures again Um, besides that, um, I was going to mention a book that I've been reading recently. So besides maritime history, I just have a lot of random, uh, history subjects I get into. I was in Utah, uh, about a month ago and I'm one of my favorite subjects to read about is American Western history. Mm -hmm. Um, and I picked up this hokey book. That's called Draw, The Greatest Gunfights of the American West by James Reasoner. Reasoner, Reasoner. Mm. Don't know how to pronounce it. But I honestly thought like, oh, this will be a fun random read. But this guy actually does a really good job at describing famous gunfights that happened in the American West and what was true and untrue about mm-hmm. you know what popular history says. And it's really fascinating. And that's what I've been reading. Oh, and then for the sports side of things, I went to a... Minnesota Wild hockey game yesterday in St. Paul. Played the Blackhawks. We crushed them three to one. <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah, that book draw sounds. It sounds interesting because that's the kind of thing that to me, knowing nothing about it, it seems like a lot of the stories would be the same. But mm-hmm. that's exactly what I would have said about shipwrecks when we started this podcast. Uh, so yeah, that that sounds like a really interesting read on something. Yeah, that I've I've never I've never really thought about that much and to be honest it's it's only because you know when i was a kid i'd watch westerns you know mm-hmm. like john john wayne westerns all that and that's how i got into it and you're definitely right it's it's a really unique i don't know uniquely american western violence just mm-hmm. a lot of it's different from you know the outlaws and the lawmen and everything in between but anywho yeah and i would say definitely go follow Scott's Instagram at Scott's Canal Captures because there's some very cool pictures on there. Because if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like pictures of boats and <laughs> it's really cool. And yeah, I would also agree that it doesn't necessarily feel like spring because we just got 17 inches of snow Friday and Saturday here. That's what we've been dealing with. 
Uh, in terms of what I've been up to, uh, normal stuff for for the podcast. I finished a second book on the Spanish Armada mm. and starting into a third one. You can do the math and figure out why I'm reading, you know, three Spanish Armada books in a week, why that might be of importance uh, to me right now. I don't question it. I just that, that I would do the same. Um, so you might see that topic coming up uh, relatively soon on the podcast. Uh, what else? Been watching Cabinet of Curiosities on Netflix. Hmm. It's from uh, Guillermo del Toro, and it's a collection of pretty short. They're like an hour long episodes. It's basically like horror short stories just on screen. Hmm. And some of them are like stories I was familiar with. Like there's a couple Lovecraft stories, Dreams in the Witch House, and I think Pikmin's Model is the other one on there. But they're really good. We've watched three of them so far. And I love horror movies, uh, but sometimes there's uh, a lot of filler and like in series also. But this is great because it's a self-contained story in one hour. So there's really not time for filler. They're really great. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, if you're into horror, definitely oh, worth awesome. checking out. I've seen a couple of things on Netflix. I don't know what the show is called, but it has a lot of sci-fi shorts, animated mm-hmm. sci-fi shorts. Well, I mm-hmm. can't remember what it was called, but I'd find that interesting. I'm going to go check that out. All the ones I've watched so far are really great. Um, mm-hmm. The third episode uh, is from the story, The Autopsy. Uh, it's definitely a lot of like body horror type stuff, which is not totally my jam, but it was a good story. It was well made. Very graphic. Uh, but anyway, that's what we've been up to. Uh, that I've been up to here. The normal stuff, reading, watching Netflix, listen to some podcasts, making a podcast. And that's it. So. I guess it's time to jump into the story of our main character today. Actually, if you don't mind, I wanted to tell a quick story of how I came upon you guys. Go for it. Actually, I normally remember to do that when we have our first guests. Is Yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found the show. Yeah, I have a bunch of history with this show because of how it was introduced to me. So <laughs> um, a little bit about me, for those that don't know, I work... And uh, our friends with Kaylee and Ian, who have also been on the show, other maritime people. I've been working at the Lake Superior Maritime Me- uh, Museum in Duluth uh, for the Army Corps of Engineers for six years now. I've been there for quite a while. Um, it's because of that job that I became a boat nerd. I wasn't really a boat nerd until then, but I was always a history guy. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually hired Kaylee at the museum when she joined us. And... One uh, winter, a few winters back, uh, I was helping her with exhibit cleaning, and she was telling me, yeah, I've been listening to this cool podcast, <laughs> and that was early on, I think, when you guys started, mm-hmm. and it was the City of Everett uh, episode on the mm-hmm. Whaleback, and I was like, oh, I just did a very intensive Whaleback uh, education program. This will be interesting, and I was kind of thinking to myself, "Yeah, I bet this. Let's see if this podcast, if they're, if these guys are good at researching, who are these <laughs> so, guys? Yeah, who are these guys? What do they know?" And um, listening to the episode, it uh, <laughs> made the afternoon go by so quickly. It was, it was a really interesting episode. I knew nothing about that particular whale back, hmm. but I had a good background on the design, the history, Alexander McDougall, all that. And there was one moment of like a insert actually moment when i heard you guys say something about um with the hatch covers on the whale back uh-huh. and i was like oh so this is so niche that i'm not going to complain about but i'm going to send them an email that's what kaylee told me yes I <laughs> and you guys said on the ne- very next episode you talked about that email i sent and i was like oh that's super cool so ever since mm-hmm. then been listening on and off i'm biased to great lakes so it's hard for me to get outside of that realm <laughs> and uh Kaylee's done an awesome job. She's a shipwreck lover as well as Ian. So they're both great friends of mine. And it's cool that we're maritime history people. Very cool. Yes, we definitely appreciated that. Um, We love getting feedback on stuff. We love hearing uh, ways that we can improve our understanding of all these things. And for the record, I think I think you guys are great at researching. You do a really good job. Well, thank you. Yeah. And it's always great to have uh, experts like yourself on so you can tell us some stories in detail here. I know for me, it's definitely been an adjustment. It's been a learning process because I, I came to this basically cold, um, not knowing anything about ships. Um, mm-hmm. you, you you know that if you if you listen to the early episodes of the podcast. So yeah, we're we're always uh, 
always happy when we can have you know a, a long time listener on here to discuss a story. I feel like it it's been a long time we've been wanting to have you on the show, um, but for whatever reason we just haven't. So, and that's okay. Now we're here. With all that, we we can we can jump into the story of the SS Western Reserve. All right. So with the background with this vessel, I just I got interested in this ship just because of the fact that I was doing some research on the Kinsman fleet. And you guys have already covered um, the Henry Steinbrenner in a previous episode. So Mm -hmm. this is the entirely same fleet. And I go back far enough and come to find out that this fleet was founded by Philip Minch. And the Western Reserve is all kind of connected to all this. So I'll kind of just go into some background. Philip Minch um, became a really famous ship owner on the Great Lakes, but he was born in Germany in 1820 and came here to the United States as a shoemaker in 1840, so when he was 20. Um, He made his way to Lake Erie and settled down in Vermilion, Ohio, and he started to become involved in shipbuilding. How you become, go from shoemaker to shipbuilder, I'm not quite sure, but same material, right? Similar. Same, roughly same general shape. I guess. I have no idea, but he kind of went into a big partnership with several other people that would become famous on the Great Lakes, and um, eventually he started building several several more ships, and by the time we get to about the time the Western Reserve sank in 1892, it became one of the biggest fleets on the lakes. Um, and in fact, uh, the Minch fleet included some of the first iron and steel made bulk freighters on the lakes, including the Inoko, was was built in 1882. That's super famous because it was the first, basically one of the first bulk freighters built of iron, uh, which kind of served as a model for the classic Lakers that we have today, like the Anderson. And all these vessels were in the Minch fleet. Philip Minch, the man who founded this entire fleet with his business, he actually had uh, eight children, but tragically, six of the eight died, um, most before the age of six, you know, the, the times of disease mm-hmm. and, and all that. Yeah, I feel like anytime we're doing, you know, reading about some of these early uh, shipping, uh, you know, business people, these shipping magnates, and anytime it's like, oh, he had 10 children, and there's always the, there's always the but after it. Yeah. Um, almost always. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, I guess, you know, just the times that people are living in. That's a sad way to start the story. And honestly, this theme of tragedy kind of keeps going throughout, not just the Minch family history, the fleet that they had, but also uh, Kinsman with the, the Henry Steinbrenner and the Anna Minch in the 1940 armistice storm. It's just, there's so much mm-hmm. tragedy. It's so sad, but it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. But one of the children that did survive, uh, Philip Minch's son, Peter Minch, uh, was born in 1842. And he would basically take over his father's business when his father died in 1887 at the age of 67. So uh, Peter Minch um, is involved in the story that he uh, was the owner and operator of the Minch fleet when the Western Reserve sank. And he was actually on the Western Reserve when it sank. And that will tie into why this became such a big deal at the time. But he himself started sailing at the age of 14 in his dad's fleet, which is pretty amazing. He was going to school and then, I don't know, had some minor job as a cabin boy or something on the sailing vessels. Mm -hmm. Uh, He became a captain by the age of 21, which was pretty significant. And he basically captained a lot of his father's uh, ships early on before he took over the fleet in 1887. It's amazing contrast to see a situation like this where you have someone, you know, making captain on the lakes, you know, in in their early 20s, contrasted with some of the stories we talked about, say, with like the Lusitania, um, where you had Captain Turner, you've got guys waiting and having to wait until they're, you know, 40s or 50s before they're able to get in command of a ship. So good for him. Good for Peter. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, this was definitely, um, he became basically one of the most well-known vessel owners around the lakes. Um, He was a prominent member of the uh, Lake Carriers Association or the Cleveland uh, Ship Owners Association of the time, which was basically the big association of all the ship owners around the lakes. Um, Anyone famous at the time for shipping was involved in that. 
um, which basically became another reason why the Western Reserve tragedy became so widely uh, covered. So with the Western Reserve itself, the Western Reserve uh, was a 318-foot-long steam bulk freighter that was launched in August August 20th, 1890 uh, by the Cleveland Shipbuilding Company, Cleveland, Ohio. It was uh, one of the first steel-built bulk freighters. And these freighters are like the Arthur M. Anderson, the classic Laker with the front pilot house and the engine. Uh, other combinations are at the back and in the middle of the vessel is where the bulk cargo would go. And the Western Reserve was, uh, like all the other bulk freighters of the time on the Great Lakes, meant to carry iron ore, grain, and coal cargoes. And in fact, I believe the first steel bulk freighter on the lakes uh, was built in 1886. So this was only four years. So it's still pretty early on. Um, up until this point, uh, most vessels on the lakes were built of wood, mostly because of how abundant it was around the lakes. Iron wasn't really introduced into at least bulk freighters until the Anoko in 1882. So iron was also a newer building material. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stories out there on how the vessel owners and operators didn't necessarily trust iron and steel (laughs) early on, (laughs) just because a simple, you know, if you just thought about it without much science behind it, you just think, oh, it's heavy. So have you seen iron and water? Have you seen what happens? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. And it's like, you know, it does sound a little crazy, but I don't blame (laughs) them. Plus, it was cheaper to build these wooden vessels. But iron and steel were significant in the evolution of Great Lakes ships because they were able to build the ships a lot longer and uh, stronger. Plus, they would last forever. Um, the wooden, uh, a wooden vessel on the lakes could last on average 20, 30 years. A steel mm. vessel on the lakes, there's one out there right now that was built in 1913, I believe. The St. Mary's Challenger is out there as a barge, mm. and it's been over 100 years. <laughs> so it's just amazing. The Alpina is pretty old, also, isn't she? I, I think she's like maybe not quite 100, but I think she's up there as well. Um, just insane ages on some of these lake vessels. So the Alpina is considered the oldest active steam vessel on the lakes, mm-hmm. built in 1942. The St. Mary's Challenger had that title until they turned it into a barge um, in 2011, I believe. But it's still, you know, um, a lot of people in the industry love to point out, like, this ship has been operating for forever. But, of course, you don't realize, well, most of the original steel has been replaced by now. So literally, they've rebuilt it a few times. But An actual ship of Theseus uh, moment here. And I think that's fascinating. You mentioned what 1886 as the first steel hulled vessel. To me, that definitely seems like something that wouldn't have come about until like the early 20th century, mm-hmm. like at the earliest. So it's it's crazy to me that they're building these so early because uh, mm-hmm. it seems like such a modern thing. Yeah, and um, they're definitely. It did take a while for steel and iron to fully take over the shipbuilding material on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. What's kind of a constant theme in Great Lakes maritime history is that it first starts out, the technology first starts out on the ocean and it slowly trickles into the Great Lakes system. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but anywho, back to the Western Reserve uh, here. A little bit of some specs on this vessel. Uh, like I said, it's 318 feet long overall, 41 feet wide, 28 feet deep. Uh, could carry about 3,000 uh, gross tons of cargo, um, gross tons being long tons, um, which is, man, should have wrote this back down. It's like 2,000 <laughs> some pounds. If you look up gross ton, it's like 2,000 some ton- pounds. So Is it like 20, 21, 2200, something like that? Yeah, it's something okay. close to that. And just to give you some perspective, a modern thousand footer on the Great Lakes can carry about 60,000 gross tons of cargo. So it's very small compared to today. But uh, the Western Reserve was actually one of the larger freighters built and operating at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was powered by a coal-fired Scotch boilers and a triple expansion steam engine, which was pretty typical of the time. And uh, the vessel was built for Peter G. Minch, uh, as we discussed. He was the one managing the Minch fleet at the time. 
And two others from the Cleveland Shipbuilding Company had part ownership in the vessel, but it was mostly a Minch vessel. She actually took off on her maiden voyage in September of 1890 to Duluth to my location, which was cool. I didn't know that until the other day. I was like, huh. But that was kind of typical. Um, Duluth at the time was becoming a prominent port for iron ore, and that's what these freighters were being built for. The fact that the Western Reserve, it was... um, it was constantly, if you look through the Marine Review, which was published in Cleveland, um, kind of the common magazine at the time of talking about Great Lakes shipping, you'd see the Western Reserve listed in cargo records constantly. Uh, so in the the two years that she operated, you'll list like, for example, uh, 1890, she carried the second largest cargo through the Sulaks that year, which was 2,946 net tons of iron ore, mm. or uh, listed in June of 1892, carrying 3,017 gross tons of ore. And the, so this, this vessel was a great moneymaker um, for the Minches, and it was also used to carry record uh, grain cargoes. Um, mm. So um, this story is kind of being set up to almost an Edmund Fitzgerald level of how did this thing sink? It is a huge ship built of steel. We've said it a lot. And I think we said it most recently with the Hans Hedtoft in Greenland is you don't want to be setting records. You want to be right in the middle. You don't want any attention. Don't be the fastest. Don't be the biggest because that's the ones you're going to sink. And uh, fortunately, in this case, they didn't have any Norwegian ships nearby, but that didn't help Mm -hmm. them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. kind of ensconced up in the lakes, safe from the depredations of the Norwegians. So as the story goes, the Western Reserve famously was on a trip up from the lower lakes up to, it was coming up to Lake Superior to load iron ore to harbor, so it was empty. On board, uh, the fleet uh, manager Peter Minch, who was 66 in the t- at the time, and his family were basically on board for sort of a vacation, um, which was pretty common. Even up to today, uh, Great Lakes freighters have guest accommodations typically, mm-hmm. and the Western Reserve was no different. It was kind of the flagship of the Minch fleet. Um, and uh, with Peter were uh, his wife and two children were with him. His wife's sister and his wife's sister's child were on board, plus a crew of 22 or so were also with. And the rest of the story is all going to be controlled and told by Harry Stewart, which was the 24-year-old wheelsman on board. He was the sole survivor, so everything we have is based off of what he has to say. And uh, for this part, honestly, I'm not even going to try to summarize it that much i'm just gonna read the official sworn uh interview that he was given that the insurance people at the time forced him to (laughs) interview and talk about you know this is what happened Uh, so this is on the marine review uh, edition from september 15th 1892 which was about two weeks or so after the tragedy quote we locked through the sioux after dinner august 30th we passed whitefish point about four o'clock and adopted the usual course to clear Keweenaw Point. So they were going up at an angle, the usual. Um, if you look at marine traffic you um, or some other app to see where all the shipping lanes are, it was the typical route you take. Um, wind was westerly with the sea running more from the northwest increasing. So basically he's talking about how um, there was a storm that was kind of brewing as they got out onto the lake. And uh, Stuart then says that he went to into his room, which was at the pilot house at the front of the vessel, about 7 o'clock um, at night. Up until 9 o'clock, the sea was very heavy, he claimed, uh, causing the vessel to labor and occasionally pound hard, but making reasonably good weather. So one thing to keep in mind when this was happening is they are empty and they are plowing into waves. Also, I don't know if he mentions this in his interview but there is um, water ballast towards the back of the vessel that's the only thing that's keeping it um, more or less stable as they're going through Mm -hmm. waves at the hour mentioned there uh, which was nine o'clock there was a violent jolting shock and jar which is never good followed by noise of a spar breaking and falling on deck so basically a loud not great to be hearing noise kind of an uh uh-oh situation So he basically got up, paraphrasing a little bit, 
and he ran into Captain Myers. Captain Myers was, uh, Ca- Albert Myers was his full name. He was the captain on board. Um, he'd been captain of the vessel for the last two years. Captain Myers claimed uh, that everyone should go to the lifeboats, that she would sink quickly. And uh, Stuart uh, was only partially dressed at that time, which always seems to happen in these <laughs> situations. If you ever read about, you know, um, the famous shipwreck, the Morel in 1966 mm-hmm. at Lake Huron, uh, the guy that survives, he was literally just wearing a coat and some shorts or something right. like that. So, <laughs> always a bad. I don't know how these people survive in those kind of conditions, but he hurried out and ran to the aft part of the vessel on the port side uh, to one of the lifeboats. And what he describes seeing is that there was a break in the deck forward of the main mast. So basically just behind the pilot house or so there was a huge uh, crack there and the main mast was broken and the night was very dark. So I'm not quite Mm -hmm. sure how he saw it, but, um, he was able to see that there was a huge gap in the vessel. He then says the wind had died down for a shift, but the sea was very heavy at the time, so the waves were pretty big. Both lifeboats were launched, one on the port and one on other on the starboard. In the starboard boat, he says uh, the captain, actually, no, sorry, not the captain, Peter Minch um, was in the starboard boat. In it with his wife and two children. So actually, most of the people got off the boat. I believe in all, he says, about 19 people were able to get off out of the total, I want to say, 25, 26 or so people that were on board. I think it's interesting here to see, you know, he talks about seeing this four-foot crack opening across the deck. And while this is probably not good or expected on any type of vessel, it seems to me it would be especially jarring on a steel hulled vessel. Whereas like I think about wooden vessels breaking apart, um, that seems like something that could happen. Uh, Whereas, you know, uh, obviously I know it does happen like with the Bradley and the Morel, but uh, somehow the, the idea of, of one of these, these steel hulled freighters breaking apart is so much scarier. Yeah. This is what the lake can do. I just try to imagine myself just being absolutely horrified. And, um, the wheelsman that were the account that we're reading, Harry Stewart, he was 24, but he was actually, um, he'd been sailing on the lakes for about four years. And this was, I think his first year on a steel vessel. He'd been on wooden vessels before. So mm-hmm. I'm sure he like got on the Western reserve and thought, Oh, maybe this will be safer <laughs> than what I'm used to. Cause wooden vessels on the great lakes, you'll commonly read accounts of like, Oh, uh, there was a leak and it sank or the seams right. opened in a bad weather real easily, you know, mm-hmm. kind of moving along here in his account. He basically gets into one to the, one of the lifeboats captain, as he calls him, captain Minch or the managing owner, Peter Minch and his family are in the lifeboat with him. Um, they were able to actually pick up uh, one of the crew members who was unable to get into the other lifeboat. So something happened to the other lifeboat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he claims that it sank, uh, the guy that they picked up. And the Western Reserve itself um, actually sank in about 10 minutes. So it sank really quickly. Mm. And the exact location isn't known. Uh, it hasn't been found this to, di- to this day, but they were about 60 miles from Whitefish Point or about 20 to 30 miles from the shore of the UP of Michigan. Um, so based off of those calculations, they basically set out to row for a long period of time as best they could despite the bad waves. In part of his account, he does mention that their lifeboat was pretty overloaded with people. Um, it was actually, there were too many um, in the lifeboat to the point where they were having a lot of water coming over the sides, uh, which is never good. Are these metal lifeboats or wooden lifeboats? So um, the one that capsized was a metal lifeboat, supposedly, and they were in a wooden lifeboat. So uh, these were pretty big um, mm-hmm. and pretty sturdy. And I'll actually, uh, some interesting information will pop up about those lifeboats after mm-hmm. the disaster. Let's see, what does he say next? Uh, He says that they rode for about 10 hours, making about 30 miles, when about 7 o'clock in the morning on the 31st, when they were about a mile off the beach, there were some heavy waves. Um, They actually ran into some uh, breaker waves, um, which, Uh yes, uh, (laughs) he said it, he said it. 
basically um, the lifeboat encountered waves that were too big for it to handle and it tipped over. And unfortunately, most of the folks in that lifeboat drowned, um, mm-hmm. including pretty much everyone besides Stuart did not survive. Mm-hmm. And according to another account I saw, only three of them were wearing life jackets. Everyone else didn't have a life jacket on. Yeah, Thompson mentioned that. I think he it was it was only like a handful of the the female passengers who who had life jackets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is a common theme for various reasons that that we've had to talk about is so many of these these stories where these ships sink and people don't have life jackets for various reasons, whether it's them not being available or in some cases them just not being taken advantage of. But yeah, it's uh, it doesn't seem like the way to be uh, on one of these uh, lifeboats. And I don't know how widely used uh, these type of life jackets were uh, around the Great Lakes at the time, but my basic understanding is they were pretty simple cork life jackets, so they actually mm-hmm. did not... Um, once they were soaked, there wasn't a whole lot of... They didn't do a lot? Yeah, they couldn't do a lot after a while. They could save your life for a short amount of time, but basically mm-hmm. he, uh, Harry Stewart, did have a life jacket on that he had recovered um, after the lifeboat flipped over um, from the waves, and uh, he was able to swim to shore, barely alive, um, near what would be Deer Park, uh, Michigan. And near Deer Park is one of the famous life-saving st- stations. Hmm. So that was all his official report that he gave to the insurance companies, everyone involved. Um, but there were also various quotes that he gave to other papers at different periods of time. One of them, which I'm trying to find right now, describes like what he had to go through. Um that's another thing with these stories where someone survives this harrowing event and they get on shore. And then obviously you're, you're hounded by reporters and everyone who wants your story for the, for the paper. Yeah. There are just so many different uh, accounts that he gave uh, right after he was picked up. Ah, here, here's the quote I was looking for. So, so basically Stuart, besides the life jacket, he was wearing a heavy knit close fitting jacket, um, which is basically the reason why uh, he's alive. He doesn't think the life jacket was what saved him. It was the, <laughs> the heavy coat that he just had on him. And uh, he actually was still wearing it when they brought him back to Sault Ste. Marie a couple days later. <laughs> and mm. I'm sure he held on to that thing for the rest of his I, life. I wouldn't take it off, probably. <laughs> but he apparently half dragged, half barely just got himself to the life-saving station. He had to crawl 10 miles. Mm. now it is august so it wasn't necessarily that cold it's not like november right um so but still uh i've run 10 miles before and i can barely do that so crawling having to do it like soaking wet and probably in a good bit of shock is is probably not great Mm mm-hmm and, um, but basically the, uh, folks at the life-saving station were able to take care of him and, uh, he was picked up by a fish tug to be brought to Sault Ste. Marie and he stayed there for several days because the life-saving station bodies were coming ashore and he needed to be there to help identify them, mm-hmm. uh, as they came ashore. So this all, all this information officially came out, it looks like on September 2nd. Um, they needed a few days to confirm that the Western Reserve, you know, they noticed that it was late and mm-hmm. could be reported as missing. Um, and that's when just this whole story exploded because uh, Peter Minch being the prominent vessel owner of the time on the Great Lakes, everyone just couldn't believe that him and his family had drowned and died. Mm-hmm. Terribly tragic. Um, and also... Another reason being that this was a steel modern steel vessel. Um, they thought uh, you know, unsinkable, like the, like they would be with the Titanic, and, mm-hmm. um, and also that this happened in August. Uh, that's a strange time of year for a major Great Lakes, uh, shipping disaster. That reminds me back to our episode with Brianna, where she had her her data that she'd analyzed about you know the peak times, and obviously yes, there is the November, but then I think it was either May or June earlier. So yeah, August kind of comes in here as um a bit of an outlier. 
it was early fall, I suppose, and we've definitely gotten, you know, pretty wavy storms at our end of the lake, but that usually doesn't come until later. But basically, as the days go on, as bodies come ashore and there's identification that's taking place, there's all this talk going around the vessel owners of the lakes and the crews about how the steel vessel, the Western Reserve, sank and the death of the Minch manager. Um, so after uh, this happened, one of basically uh, Peter Minch's only surviving son, um, let me find his name, uh, another Philip Minch, um, who was 24 at the time, was basically given uh, man. He's given the uh, management position for the fleet, um, which is a big job. I'm 26, and I can't imagine taking something like that over. <laughs> no, no, I'm almost 32, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't want that. Uh, yeah, want you know, that on me. At the time, he had a fleet of six bulk freighters and two schooner barges, so there was a lot of a lot of business to be done, and. Um, this son, Philip, had to go to Lake Superior um, to settle his father's affairs and find him and take him back to Cleveland, um, Mentor, Ohio, specifically mm. uh, for a funeral and um, for the family to kind of gather. And then in comes uh, the controversy. So with Harry Stewart being the only survivor with his account, there was a lot of kind of question as to how something like this could happen. There was uh, talk, especially about, you know, was the Western Reserve, um, was it built poorly? Was there something wrong with the steel material? Um, there are all sorts of theories that were put out. Um, the main two theories that kind of came out, which I was able to find in the Marine Review that we were talked about, I'll uh, kind of describe here. And basically, a lot of captains around the lakes would explain their theories. Uh, two captains, one named John Green and the other William Robinson, uh, two veterans on the lakes were the opinion that the vessel sheared herself and broke in two um, from where that happened, from the upper deck down. So um, shearing is when uh, rivets basically cut into the plate of steel um, and basically all of a sudden cause the plates to break and another theory uh was that there was an accident or explosion on board or possibly it struck some kind of obstruction uh some kind of object while it was at sea otherwise everyone was of the opinion that the western reserve was a well-built ship um they actually the marine review actually had prominent shipbuilders that were respected at the time to look at the specs of the vessel um, one of those famous people um, that was talked to and interviewed uh, about the Western Reserve after the accident uh, was from the Detroit Dry Dock uh, Company. Uh, his name is Frank E. Kirby. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he is one of the more famous marine architects on the Great Lakes. He uh, designed the Boblo boats. He designed uh, a lot of the car ferries. He designed a lot of famous um, well-built vessels. And he said, quote, after I looked over specific specifications of the ship, um, he thought they provided ample material to suggest that this, the Western Reserve was one of the more su superior ships built on the lakes at the time. Mm -hmm. And that was backed up by another uh, general manager from the Chicago Shipbuilding Company, uh, W.I. Babick, uh, which basically said um, for the Cleveland Shipbuilding Company that any blame that attaches itself to the builders doesn't make any sense. It's absurd um, mm -hmm. because it's a well-built vessel. Nevertheless, um, because all that had happened, uh, the Western Reserve actually became, because of how modern it was, how valuable it was, it became uh, the biggest financial casualty of the 19th century on the Great Lakes. $200,000 wow. is what the whole disaster costs. And uh, that includes how much the vessel cost, the insurance money that went out to all the different owners, and hmm. um, the money that went to families and such as a result of the disaster. There's some Great Lakes bar trivia. Uh, the the biggest financial disaster on the lakes. Did you say in the in the 19th in the, century? In the 19th century, mm -hmm. um, this would easily be eclipsed later on. But right, if you consider that much amount of history, that's pretty significant. 
So honestly, as I was kind of reading through all these different accounts, you could go into detail after detail. Um, mm -hmm. It honestly just reminds me of how big the Emmett Fitzgerald accident was mm -hmm. um, with all these theories that went about official investigations that happened. This was huge. It was being talked about around the Great Lakes for weeks um, right. with this happening. And there were, you know, several shipwrecks that happened every year. And this was just obviously one of the biggest of uh, not just the decade, but in the entire history of Great Lakes shipwrecks. Yeah, in um, because Mark Thompson in Graveyard of the Lakes, he he has a it's a couple pages he spends on the Western Reserve, and he covers that same you know the aftermath, the discussion of well what what did happen to this, and he spends a bit of time talking about the quality of the steel as a point of discussion and like. Obviously, kind of like you said, there's no there's no 100 percent agreement on this. Uh, he mentions the idea that, you know, people put forth this theory that, well, what if the steel was bad quality? What if it was a you know, construction issue? Uh, he talks about the uh, the W.H. Gilker Gilcher Gilcher. Yep. S like basically her twin sinking in possibly similar circumstances, but there's no survivors from that. So we don't really know. But then kind of looking at the bigger picture, you know, it'd be easy to look at those two and say, well, it must be the quality of the steel. And he kind of steps out and says, you know, looking at the other ships constructed from this same steel at the time, the overwhelming majority of them had very long careers on the lakes. So it's it's kind of hard to point at that and say, well, it must have been bad. And that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. He also talks about Cleveland shipbuilding, obviously wanting to defend their product, uh, saying Quote, no wind or sea could disturb her. She must have struck a rock or her engines gave way. So even there, you can see like, yeah, they want to protect their building reputation, but they also don't try to shove the blame too much on, say, the captain um, or, or someone like that saying oh, it must have just been an accident. There was another interesting detail that Thompson mentions, and it wasn't very clear where this came from. I, I'd have to assume it it would come from Stuart. Um, because there's not really any other options. And he talks about as they are on, uh, they're taking shelter in the Lee of Whitefish, or Captain Albert Myers suggested taking shelter in the Lee of Whitefish Point, and Captain Minch thought that was unnecessary. Um, that, uh, I presume, had to have come from Stuart, or it's a detail that's made up. Um, Interesting. If that's the case, you could point at it and say, well, here's why ships usually have uh, one captain instead of two. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it kind of sucks having the boss kind of looking over your shoulder as you're trying to do your job here. A lot of like discussions here, but yeah, it's um, yeah, I guess it's it's hard to come to a 100% a conclusion uh, about what exactly happened. And with the discussion of the brittle steel argument, I think there is a decent amount of evidence. Um, mm -hmm. I, I found uh in January 12th, uh, 1893, so a couple months after the disaster, um, there was an anonymous uh, letter that was sent to the Marine Review uh, from someone from the Detroit Dry Dock Company basically discussing how those early steel ships were being built. Mm -hmm. And basically, it was kind of, they were throwing some shade at uh, all the other shipping or shipbuilders around the lakes. Um, and this anonymous person who is discussing it, he said, basically, I'm one of the higher ups at Detroit Dry Dock Company. I've been there for nearly 10 years. Um, and he worked on some of the first steel boats that they built uh, using Bessemer steel at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently the steel was of Lloyd's requirements. So one of the top insurers of the time, mm -hmm. um, it was up to their standards. But he said there was a huge problem uh, with this higher grade steel. It was very hard to find and it was almost impossible to get steel that was the same throughout, meaning that uh, it had impurities in it in different spots, like different amounts of phosphorus, things that would make it brittle. Mm -hmm. And um, that would make certain parts of a vessel weak if they were to use that steel. Um, and he claims that when they were using the steel, they had lab tests done on every sheet that they used. They would find plates and angles would crack um, in handling heating or punching them with a piece of equipment. And basically, he goes on to claim that Detroit Dry Dock Company has done its best to 
uh, basically not accept that and try to acquire better steel while the other shipyards would just go with the steel that they're given. <laughs> so um, how true this all is, I'm not sure. It's anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of, I think that adds to the argument of like, yeah, I think that, you know, um, steel ships were still new. So it's very possible that they were, there was something wrong with the Western Reserve and it just cracked during a bad storm while it was out there. Yeah, that's kind of a cool, you know, talking about the standardization and then the possibly unequal quality throughout these, this steel, it, it kind of highlights that difference in, we have probably much higher expectations today in these industrial settings of how things are standardized and, you know, what is the the minimum quality for these things. Uh, whereas, like you said, this is kind of a new thing that people are working with uh, in these, in these freighters um, and kind of figuring out what's, uh, what do we actually need to be doing uh, here uh, to ensure the the quality? Yeah, definitely. And um, immediately after the disaster, there was just a lot of discussion of how can we prevent this, right? Mm-hmm. And um, some of the shipbuilding companies actually decided that, all right, we're going to bu- bring in some more highly professional engineers in to inspect uh, the vessels that they were building at the time and uh, specifically one of the more respected organizations from uh, across the country was the American Shipmasters Association in New York. Uh, They were bringing in some uh, engineers from that firm. So they were trying to take steps into like, all right, we maybe there's no um, standardized inspection. So maybe we need to start doing that more Uh, stuff that the Coast Guard does today, uh, basically. And um, there was also a lot of talk too of they talked about how with the Western Reserve being empty, that there should be some more policies put in place that uh, when you're when you have an empty vessel, you shouldn't be charging it into a storm (laughs) only if it's properly loaded. Yeah. And I know that came up in Graveyard uh, where I think that was here where you mentioning uh, having the ballast uh, in the stern, obviously keeping the propellers in the water and how the bow would have been, you know, coming up out of the water as a potential, obviously adding stress to the structure of the vessel. And that's cool that you mentioned kind of these industry-wide changes of looking at these inspections and trying to make sure that these things are up to par because so often, and we could see this probably mostly, most recently when we talked about the the steamboat, the Moselle, where these accidents happen and the industry's knee-jerk reaction is to blame an individual um, or some mm-hmm. kind of freak accident. Say, well, this was just the captain being reckless. We don't need to change any of our policies or the, you know, our, our guidelines. And that's usually just an excuse to not have to look at yourself in the mirror. It's, it's cool, you know, as time progresses to see the lake carrier organizations looking at this and, and trying to take steps to avoid it. Um, Cause unfortunately this is, this is how we make new safety regulations is that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. usually people have to die. Another thing I was going to mention that one of the major changes that did take place um, was um, uh, design changed a little bit after uh, the Western Reserve and their sister ship, uh, the Gilcher, were lost. Shipbuilders decided to experiment a little bit. And um, one of the steamers that was built the next year in 1893 called the SS Curry, uh, which was launched in April 29th, instead of having the engine in the back of the vessel, they returned to the older style of having it um, amidships mm-hmm. at the middle of the ship. So that's kind of more balanced. Um, and it was designed like that specifically because of the Western Reserve disaster and the loss of her sister ship, the Gilcher. A couple of ships mm-hmm. were built that way. It didn't stick. Um, they eventually reverted back to the classic Laker style just because they realized it was not needed and that there were other steps that they could take um, to strengthen uh, the current vessels. Right. But it did alter um, ship design on the Great Lakes for a short amount of time. Raising the awareness of needing to at least counteract how or look at how we're distributing the stress on this vessel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool. So I, I had a, as long as we have time here, I have some other yeah. kind of side note stories. I don't mean to take up a lot of time, but this is no, a fascinating that's good. subject for me. But so um, I wanted to get back to Stuart a little bit. So mm-hmm. um, there were actually allegations that he fibbed his story a little bit. 
um, after the wreck took place. Um, there was a quote in the Marine Review a couple weeks after the disaster, specifically from this captain named Thomas Matham of Buffalo. Um, he says, quote, how does Stuart know the vessel was being forced into heavy sea at full speed if, as he says, he was in his berth asleep at the time of the accident? Mm-hmm. True. How could he see the opening or crack in the deck over which he declares he jumped? True, because it was pitch blackout, he said. Mm-hmm. Um, had there been an opening of three feet in the deck, as stated by Stuart, uh, the wheel chains would have parted at once, meaning they would have lost control of the vessel. Mm-hmm. And uh, the vessel would have rounded to or basically probably fallen over um, in the mm-hmm. sea. So he has a really good point. And um, all, obviously that's all just speculation, but there was evidence that his story wasn't quite right because... Both the lifeboats were recovered um, mm-hmm. by the life-saving station. They found both of them, and um, both the metal and the wooden one. And they were found to be in good shape. They actually continued to use them, interestingly, um, because they were really good quality lifeboats, <laughs> the life-saving station did. And this proves conclusively that his story about the one uh, lifeboat sinking to be incorrect. Um, mm. It actually did survive, and it appears from those two lifeboats being there that most of the people on the vessel survived. It's just when the lifeboats tried to get to shore, mm-hmm. um, they capsized, and people at the time and with the cold water, just everyone drowned. I found that interesting. The credibility of of Stewart's story, people start to kind of think about this for a minute. And that that kind of goes back to the thing I was talking about from Thompson, uh, this idea that Myers suggested them, you know, sheltering at Whitefish Point and being overruled. And again, it's like if this guy was in his cabin, where is the story from? Where 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 did you hear this? He I could imagine him being a young guy and just at the time either accidentally fibbing a little bit because of the trauma you just been through or whatever. Right. But um, he. After all this happened, um, he would be mentioned in articles every once in a while. Uh, He actually kept sailing in that fleet. Uh, That did not end his career sailing. In fact, he became a captain in 1910. And he ended up uh, sailing in the Kinsman fleet, um, which is where kind of the Minch fleet after the Western Reserve disaster, the fleet kind of uh, management went towards um, uh, Henry Steinbrenner. Henry Steinbrenner was... Uh, the uncle to the surviving son who was put in management. He was the uncle of Philip Minch. And that's Hmm. where Henry Steinbrenner comes in and the Kinsman Company comes into view. Um, But basically, Stuart uh, was captain of a lot of these Kinsman vessels later on in his life. And there's kind of a scary, at least to me, kind of a sketchy, scary kind of I think he's a bad luck charm. That would be (laughs) the best way to describe it. So um, he was, uh, he became captain of the Inoko in 1910. The Inoko sank in 1915, five years later. He was captain of the Annecy Minch in 1912. That was the famous vessel that sank in the 1940 Armistice Day storm with all hands. Uh, He was captain of the Henry Steinbrenner in 1914, the one that sank in 1953. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, it's just a coincidence, but like that guy just has an aura of bad luck. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And then he was captain of the George C. Humphrey when that ship came out in 1927. That vessel famously sank in 1943, but was later recovered. So nothing else really bad happened to him, just the ships that he was on. Right. He died at the age of 70 at his home in 1938 in Michigan. So um, he had a long storied career. I'm sure this guy could tell you tons of stories, but <laughs> apparently he didn't like talking about the Western Reserve story. So that makes a lot of sense. Since we have a great opportunity, I'll I'll plug our older episode. We we talked about the Henry Steinbrenner in episode 51 uh, way back on February 20th, 2022. Uh, so if anyone wants to to hear more about that, uh, we cover that a little bit. And yes, the Steinbrenner name that is uh, related to the Steinbrenners of Yankee fame. Yep. Um, and then one last side story for you. That'll be a lot quicker. So the basically the only things that were recovered for the Western Reserve were 
all but two of the crew members were recovered. Um, the only piece of wreckage that really came ashore was the starboard light um, that came off the vessel. It came ashore on Lake Superior sometime during 1893. Um, it was given to Philip Minch, um, the son of the lost Peter Minch uh, manager. And um, he basically kept held on to that um, starboard ship light his whole life. He actually installed it into his home to be kind of as a memorial for the siblings that he lost in mm-hmm. that tragedy. Um, his house, he basically called it the starboard lighthouse and he lived in mentor Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, the light still exists. Um, it was actually after he died in 1944, the starboard light was taken and given to the James C. Garfield presidential house. And it was put on that house for 40 or 50 years. Um, and now I believe it is in the possession of, uh, what historical society is it down there? I was doing, I went down a huge rabbit hole trying to figure out <laughs> if I could see a picture of it. Cause I think it'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing left of the Western reserve, um, who has it? The Lake County historical society in Painesville, Ohio, uh, supposedly mm-hmm. has it in its possession. So it's still out there. It's just interesting how that lamp um, was put on uh, the presidential Garfield house for like 40 years mm-hmm. um, as kind of a cool artifact. And then it's um, it's somewhere out there today still. So Cool. Awesome. Um, and you said that most of the most of the bodies were recovered from this one. Correct. Yep. Um most of the family or pretty much all the family members were brought back to Cleveland and buried there. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the other uh, bodies recovered were buried somewhere near the life-saving station mm-hmm. uh, at Deer River, uh, Michigan. So they're still out there. Uh, the unfortunate thing was at the time, um, very few lists were kept of crews and passengers. Mm-hmm. So, um in fact, most of the bodies were unidentified. Um, they were kind of buried into a mar- uh, unmarked grave. Um, and there was actually some discussion that popped up, especially after the loss of the Western Reserve and the sister ship, the Gilcher, that they should have official, official record keeping <laughs> of the crews on board. So yeah. if they all die, that they have a record of who was on board. So um, when did that get officially introduced i don't know but Mm. um, apparently it's very common back then at that point of time to not have an official list of crew members it's so crazy especially thinking because like i mean i've I've been doing a lot of reading about the spanish armada and Uh we're talking like late 1500s here and like even way back then obviously depending on the (laughs) the context and who's doing it but like there's like pretty thorough records of like who and what is on every vessel like not oh, down wow. to the common guys but that's very well documented so yeah the the idea that like in certain contexts you know so late it's like we don't we don't develop the need for you know an official crew list until you know what like the 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 early 20th century probably mm-hmm. um and also i was gonna say so with all of those being recovered you know the lake it said never gives up her dead we can we can say that that is thoroughly debunked here yes um, yeah and um, that's kind of further evidence that suggests that those lifeboats capsize, you know, not far right. offshore. They were able to find most of the bodies. So most of mm-hmm. them got off uh, when the vessel sank. Right. The, of course, that didn't mean anything because they didn't survive. But mm-hmm. does that make um, someone feel a little bit better out there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we talk about surviving a shipwreck as a series of bottlenecks. You know, it's, you know, first it's getting out of your cabin, getting up on deck. Uh, and then getting off of the ship as it's going down. And then, you know, once you're off the ship, well, you know, now either in a, in a lifeboat or in a modern one, if you've got a survival suit, it's just a series of bottlenecks to get through. And I feel like there is something a little bit heartening to know that, you know, at least the, the lifeboats were effective in, in being deployed. I think mm-hmm. that does help because, because so often that's not the case. So often mm-hmm. that's where people end up being killed is in the process of, of boarding lifeboats. Um, yeah, I think we'll we'll call that we'll call that a, a small uptick uh, in a not quite a happy ending, but it's uh, maybe happier. And the last official plug I have for the Western Reserve topic is it's still missing. Go out and find it. Somebody someone get on that. <laughs> someone um, get on that. Be very cool to find it. I don't know. 
we we probably do have some listeners who are diving enthusiasts. I don't know if we've ever talked to anyone who is, but if you're uh, looking for something fun to do this summer, go look for the Western Reserve. Please very be very careful. It's way in the middle of the lake. <laughs> it's very yes. scary out there. Yes, um, definitely. Um, we will we will sponsor your trip uh, from our Patreon funds uh, oh, <laughs> as long as you can do it for like a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah. You can get creative with that. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, so yeah, I mean, if I guess if if that's if we've exhausted the extensive knowledge of scott on this vessel here i guess it just remains for us to to say thank you uh for your time and sharing all of that with us scott yeah and thanks again for having me on i like i say i thoroughly enjoy the podcast and it was this was very fun and as i know earlier in the show we already we plugged your instagram scott's canal captures um any other any other projects any other things you'd like to plug anything you want to share um not really that's kind of that's kind of it um so with that uh we will sign off here and uh we'll be back with you next week as we so often are uh with another topic uh i believe we do have another guest host next week uh and uh yeah with all that we'll just say thank you all for listening uh take care and we'll talk to you next week <laughs>